Welcome back to the AEC Disruptors Podcast, your platform to help push the AEC industry forward. I'm your host, Christopher Riddell, and joining me today is my co-host, Jackson Sensat. What's going on, Jackson? Oh, nothing much, Chris. Just an, another day, another day on the podcast front. Another day, another episode. Uh, this episode, we had Patrick Chopson join us. He's the co-founder of Cove Tool. Uh, Cove Tool is a sustainability building design tool, and you know, I thought it was a great talk. We talked about a lot of different things, everything from Cove Tool to machine learning to systemic racism. Uh, what did you think of the talk? You know, I I had a lot of fun on this one because you know my background is not uh, you know in architecture. But whenever I get to hear you and somebody as smart as uh, Patrick get together and chop it up a little bit, um, you know, it's it's definitely uh, something that I really like to be a part of. Um, you know, he's a really smart guy. He's surrounded himself with a really smart team. And, you know, what they're doing over there at Cove Tool is really, you know, I know it's a cliche to say, but it's going to make the world a better place. It's going to make it easier for architects to design buildings for the future um you know with a big focus on sustainability i thought it was really cool um i i follow them a lot and i've seen a lot that they post on social media and they seem very passionate about what they do they seem very passionate about their company and it really led to a really great talk and and even the fact that they um have that sample project on mars and we talked a little bit about what a efficient building on mars looks like that definitely seemed to perk both our interest yeah, that was a mind blown moment. And that, that was one of those moments where you're like, man, I'm I'm so lucky to get to talk to this guy about this kind of stuff. I immediately wanted to download it so I could test out the, the Mars project. It was a great episode. I hope you enjoy it and check back for more. Joining us today on the Disruptors is Patrick Chopson, co-founder of Cove Tool. How's it going, man? Going pretty good. Um, we uh, we're excited to have you. We had Sandeep on on our first season, and that was a very popular episode. We are huge fans of Cove Tool, so we felt like it was worth bringing someone else on. Awesome, awesome. Really looking forward to talking to you guys. Yeah. So um, before we get started too deep into the conversation, I kind of want to hear a little bit about yourself. Um, I was kind of like stalking you on LinkedIn and it looks like your education is very, has a varying degree of engineering, architecture, building performance. Um, you know, kind of how have you gotten to where you are now and, and what really inspired you to, to help co-found uh, Cove Tool? Yeah, I guess I've always been really interested in the intersection between like architecture and engineering and like how science and art kind of always, um, how those two things kind of connect to each other. So I think originally when I've always, even since high school, was really interested in architecture. So I read like a lot of theory and things like that, probably stuff that, you know, 16 year old shouldn't be reading, but um, read, read all that stuff. And I was like, you know what, I think I like engineering best. So I started off becoming a mechanical engineer, um, but I really found that that particular uh, profession with, with regards to buildings is quite uh, table driven. So there's not a lot of like actual engineering that happens sometimes, um, depending on you know, obviously other firms like Arup, that's not the case, but you know, maybe some other ones, maybe it's just like, I look it up in a table and it's like, good to go. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, so I think I kind of got a little bit disillusioned with that. And so I went back and became an architect. 
Um, so did that here in uh, Kennesaw State in Atlanta, Georgia, or I guess Marietta, you might say. Um, but then, um, and then from there went on to do, um, you know, obviously practice, worked, things like that, and was still interested in like, how does the science and technology side kind of mash up? So I ended up going to Georgia Tech for my master's in high performance buildings um, from, from there. And that's basically like a simulation degree and ended up working at a, a firm and then before starting a pattern, which is the consulting practice. And then from there, uh, we kind of were automating all these different things as part of the consulting and architecture firm. Um, and then I was like, you know what, maybe we should actually start selling this to other people. And that's kind of where the genesis of Cove Tool came from, was kind of taking what we were doing in consulting and then rolling that over into software. And now um, all we do is uh, software, so with Cove Tool. Is a uh, pattern R and D still up and running, or are you guys mainly focused on Cove Tool? No, it's it's like uh, cut now, so it's like um, we're just hundred percent focused on software. Okay. Um, so I run mostly the product side of things. So anything having to do with like the research or like how it's supposed to look, um, that's going to be the thing that I'm in charge of. And then Sandy, who's the other co-founder, um, she's more focused on like the finance and sales aspect, and Daniel. Chopson, who's also my brother, um, he's uh, our CTO. So he basically runs the whole software team, how things actually work and meshing up. So he and I spend a lot of time working together. Uh, which is How's cool. that working with your brother? Is he older or younger? He's the younger brother. Um, okay. Yeah. But we're, we've always kind of been like the two compadres since we were like little kids because we're mm-hmm. only like a couple years apart. Um, so we we're always like getting into trouble in the neighborhood when we were kids and coming up with entrepreneurial things like we grew up in Indiana. So did a lot of like shoveling snow and, you know, walking dogs and stuff like that. So we were always like had some little side angle. Like we even one summer we came up with this idea that people needed their air conditions serviced. So we would take apart like AC units and then clean them and put them back together. Uh, we, we sold golf balls um, that we find in the woods uh, at golf courses. And, you know, so there's always some, some entrepreneurial angle that we were working on. So it was, it's pretty natural working together now. Um, you know, we have different domains. So I think that's the most important part of a startup is that each co-founder have something that they're watching and that you trust the other person to like, say like, no, no, we can't do this way. And then you just like, I got go with it, you know? So I guess the, the three of you all sort of co-founded it. You know, it, that makes, I've, I've done a lot of reading from the business perspective, just in general. And like three is kind of that magic number. Um, oh, yeah. Two, there's always that conflict of who's going to make the final decision. And three, there's a lot more um, harmony between the, between the group. Can be. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in, theory. I, in theory, but I think like, uh, that's one of the things that really works well with us, you know, because like I said, each person has their own thing. Um, so Sandeep is like, you know, we got to launch these features so we can make more sales and I can raise another round of funding. Then I'll design it, make sure it gets designed in time, Daniel, make sure it gets built in time. You know, so there's a nice, um, you know, each person having their own domain. Um, that works really well. Good. I watched, uh, I was watching a webinar that she was on yesterday or it was posted the other day about the AIA. Should they have a software developer? And the question was something about the technology and she like was about to describe, I guess, what she thought your brother did. And uh, it was just kind of funny because she was like, oh, I'm going to say what I think he does. And hopefully he's not going to be upset with that. <laughs> um, but, you know, like I said, we, we're huge fans and we've kind of watched Cove Tool um, 
through over the last couple of years. Um, you know, what are you guys, what are you up to right now? Yeah. So right now we're building out some really cool stuff. Like uh, for example, we're building out a 3d drawing tool that allows you to actually draw in, in Cove tool and make closed geometry, which is kind of like uh, the thing that's really hard to do. And then when you import geometry, the drawing tool figures out like what, um, what's a wall, what's a window to make these like closed models that then can be exported to like a compliance energy modeling tool, which is open studio. Um, so that's a pretty big advancement allows us to take energy modeling from end to end from concept all the way to like the um, compliance. Um, and then the other things we're working on are things like, uh, for example, we're collaborating with this wood products company to allow them to like, basically do an entire structural layout in Cove tool. Um, and the last part that we're really excited about is that we're building out all these features um, that are uh, incorporating different aspects of like equity, um, things like uh, where the flooding is, where the pollution is, um, you know, all this data sets that can allow people to make more informed decisions when they're actually designing the urban plan of the project as well. Have you guys seen, um, like as a result of COVID, has there been any features, maybe they're not even created yet, that you've started to think about as something you want to implement? Yeah, so definitely COVID really accelerated the trend towards digital tools and workflows. So from, you know, we were kind of, we were going good and then COVID happened and it's just like sales went really high because uh, everyone's trying to figure out, okay, I'm hiring consultants. How do I like maybe reduce the cost of that? How do I bring some of this expertise in-house? And so that's really uh, sped things up. Um, so that's been really, really interesting, I think, in terms of how that's helped us kind of shape our, our product roadmap has mostly been on uh, incorporating different things that allow the engineers and architects to talk more and to collaborate more on the full end-to-end cycle. Um, I think before we were kind of focused on being more of a conceptual tool. And now we're seeing it's about reducing data translation problems between like different groups of people. And so I think we've kind of gone from being a billing performance application to being a data processing platform is kind of like that. And then of course that helped us raise a series A um, in October, uh, which only 4% of companies ever really get to. That's awesome. Um, Congratulations. Yeah. So that's like, that was mostly based on our sales process being figured out. So each, each kind of piece kind of feeds into the other. Um, for things like that the three-legged stool Mm -hmm. tripod (laughs) yeah can you go a little bit into the uh, machine learning that's incorporated into your tool yeah yeah so for our thing we're doing um, we're actually I guess like comparing against like a a baseline so that would be like something like an energy code minimum building or a minimum daylight um, kind of quality and then we're running optimization where we're checking against that and, and trying to do that without doing brute force, but actually using an algorithm that lets us like sample the data set and then converge with a certain percentage of confidence on what the right, um, what the right result is or bundle of different types of results that kind of like, so you can only have like good options to pick from rather than like all the options, which isn't necessarily, it's really hard for humans to make decisions when you exceed three things, um, but having some kind of way of narrowing down um, all those different alternatives is definitely what I think machine learning is really helpful for. That makes a lot of sense. Cause I even know like my, um, the hardest decision I have to make on a Friday is where we're going to eat. And there's only like five places we can go that have curbside. And it's like the most stressful thing to do 
It's like, I just want someone to give me the optimal option. Just like, this is where you want to eat. And I don't have a choice. Right. Um, You know, and that's, what's funny is like, when you think about, you know, other things like generative design and all this stuff, you get thousands of options and on services sounds really cool, but then, then I get overwhelmed. Cause like, that's just too many. I really just want to know what's, what's optimal. So it sounds like that's how you guys are trying to leverage some machine learning aspect to really get to, you know, drill down to that optimal solution. Yeah, we're, our bias is more towards parametric design. So there's kind of like two branches of thought right now. Uh, one is like, we'll do generative design, we'll generate options and we'll pick options from there. And then parametric design is where I have a design objective and I use the computer to explore alternatives that help me achieve that objective. So it's uh, one, I feel like the human is directing the machine. The other one, the machine is making things and the human is picking from things that the computer came up with. So I feel like my bias is always towards when we build our tool is to help people figure out like if I want this glass atrium that faces west instead of telling the user oh no you can't have that it's like what are we going to change to make that possible because maybe from an urban standpoint or something it makes sense for people to come off um, the transit and walk directly to into your building and even if from an energy perspective it wouldn't make sense to put all that glass there, you still need a way for people to know that that's the entrance. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, things like that, I think are really important to um, help people kind of like make better decisions. And so using automation onto um, simplifying the problem rather than making it more complex. You, uh, you know, I've, I've, like I said before, I followed you guys for quite a while now, and it seems like at least from, from my perspective, based on what I see you guys post and what you guys do, uh, you know, you built this tool, not just because it was, uh, something you, you could do, but you guys seem very passionate about sustainability. Mm-hmm. Is that something that just kind of drives through your culture? Yeah. So basically if, if we're going to actually stop the carbon emissions problem, um, you know, buildings are obviously 40% of carbon emissions. So the only way to get that, to really bend the curve on for carbon emissions is to deal with the building problem. However, building the whole building problem is a very diffuse thing because all these different people share responsibilities So no one person in the process, whether that's the contractor, the owner, the architect ha- actually can make a definitive decision that affects that goal. So um, we found that the best way to do that is to kind of reduce all the data loss between all those different people and figure out a way to like manage the process using automation. Um, and so that's kind of like why everything we do is unto reducing carbon emissions. Um, in some way. How does the machine learning uh, interact with whenever there's like a choice to put solar panels or rainwater collection within a building? Yeah. So I think like the thing that usually makes it so people don't choose to do those kinds of of sustainable techniques is the cost. So being able to balance the cost trade-offs between all those different things is an aspect. You know, energy is great, but the most energy efficient building is like a prison with no windows. Um, so you have to kind of balance all these different competing objectives. And that's kind of like where the patent pending, or actually now it's patented. Uh, the patented aspect of CoveTool is with that machine learning is being able to compare all these different alternatives and also the embodied carbon. So it's like the carbon that goes into making the materials that go into your building, like concrete and steel uses a lot of electricity. Um, and that carbon that's being emitted to make the, the buildings that we're building today is like, you know, it's not like we can reduce that over time. It's like locked in because when you make steel beam 
it's a steel beam. There's no way to like reduce its carbon once it's made. So, you know, kind of allowing people to see that not only from an energy and a cost and a payback and, a, you know, there's all these different concerns that people have, or maybe even, you know, just like the maintenance facility guys, they can't service a certain type of HVAC equipment. So being able to see, you know, whether it's worth it or not to train them to do that um, can also be a factor. So there's so many different factors that you really do need machine learning to balance all those competing things against each other. So you arrive with like a solution that's the best of all worlds. Cause you know, like in kind of traditionally how a human would think you kind of follow this decision tree where you kind of like make a decision, you make another one. And then, you know, there could be thousands of alternatives, but if you've gone up one side of the decision tree doing one choice at a time, you can't really see all the other alternatives that could be cheaper or something like that. And so I think um, being able to use machine learning, you can examine all these different branches of the data and find ones that you wouldn't have thought to look through. We, um, you know, we're, we started touching on this idea of automation and you mentioned something I thought was pretty interesting when we first started chatting and it was, um, you guys are looking a lot at just how automation is changing the way we practice. And so, you know, I'm curious about that. And then I'm also curious about, are you looking or considering how automation even changes how we build our firms? Hmm. Yeah, I think um, the part, the reason why architecture is not very profitable is because there's just so many darn um, design revisions. <laughs> um, that's usually the problem. And also the complexity is so high that most people are pushing, just they're mostly pushing data around instead of designing. Um, so if you're able to reduce one design revision per project per year, that's like a 3% uh, profit increase for your firm, which is a lot. Um, oh, yeah. So that kind of like is what I think inspires, I think us as well from myself as an architect, as well as to think about like, how can we make it so that people can practice and make more money? Um, in fact, if you use more automation, you can probably pay your staff more. Um, it's entirely possible that like, you know, young unlicensed professionals could be making like 10 to 15 K more uh, per year if you were using more automation. So it's just like reducing the amount of time that you're spending working on the project um, and maximize the time that you're designing can definitely lead to more innovative outcomes, in my opinion. I think it goes too to like the the type of leader in those firms, because, you know, you could look at automation as one of two things. Either it's, you know, one, it's freeing up time so I could do more of what I love, which may be design. But you could look at it as it's, I'm freeing up time so I don't need as many people. But it sounds like your perspective is, you know, the right thing to do is, I'm saving more time and money. Therefore I can actually increase, you know, whatever my, my current employees make um, to contribute to their happiness or satisfaction. Right. I mean, like the amount of, I think from a practice standpoint, we're, we're so far over time. Like we're, we're so far over what the project is budgeted for that any automation just brings you back into what's the reasonable business model. Not so much that you're going to lose people or have to, or be able to do the work with less folks. Um, and two, you know, automation isn't, doesn't replace like decision-making and like the things that you want to maximize the things that architects are good at, which is like synthesizing and viewing the whole problem and making informed choices. It's just the process of gathering the data to make that choice is happening with so much incomplete data that you're usually making a lot of choices that are counter to like the business model, which you know, you're, it's a fixed fee. So <laughs> typically. 
That's such a good point. Cause I mean, I don't think I ever worked as hard as I did when I was doing architecture, whether it was in school or working for an architecture firm. And, you know, we'd always have to do timesheets and then there'd be people that after they hit that 40 hours, they quit counting their time, but they're still working. And, you know, my rationale would always be, we, I don't like timesheets, but we got to track it. Cause we got to know how long is this actually taking us? Because yeah. now it looks like it took you 40 hours to do it, but in fact it was 60 hours. And then the next time I'm going to say, Hey, I bet you we could do it in 35 hours and it's going to take me 65 hours, you know, and it just kind of, it kind of keeps exactly. going. When I ran my own architecture practice as part of a pattern, we designed like 200 homes and like commercial buildings in two years. And the team never worked more than 40 hours. Um, and some of that, actually a lot of that just comes down to proper management of resources and time using processes. So like, for example, even just having like a document that's like, check all these things before you send me the drawing to review. Like a lot of firms don't do that. Um, or like if you're going to do red lines, red line it yourself first um, and then show it to me. You know, that's something a lot of firms do do, uh, but not, but maybe like each person isn't trained on how to like, you know, analyze each drawing to find all the things. So like making processes is almost as important as making automation. Um, you know, having, having like standardized details or having like a workflow that you've documented um, can sometimes actually for us, it, it always led to like a more profitable project. Um, you know, cause you're always, I think a lot of times like architects just don't do the math on their business model to understand like what is a utilization factor, like how much percentage of time can someone actually do billable work? You know, being able to like understand that allows you to understand what kinds of technology to implement. So even beyond like, you know, building simulation and things like that, um, if you think about like, okay, if I use, if I'm using this Dell tech or some really old time tracking thing, um, that's going to add overhead to people's time to track that. Wouldn't it be better if we used one platform that had all our project, you know, boards and one sheet where we can see everything. It's not a Google sheet or a, a spreadsheet, but an actual software like monday.com or something where we're can set priorities, set tasks, everyone can see a shared understanding of where the project deadlines are, you know, things like that. Um, a lot of times architects are afraid of like the training time that it might take to implement a new technology instead of looking past that to the productivity gains that could result from that. So. I think if, you know, it's an interesting kind of tangent here, but if, if we were able to, and I don't know, I'd be curious, Jackson, to get your perspective from, construction if this is the case but in architecture we are like we have a time you know a, a time mentality everything's based on number of hours uh, versus like a task mentality it's not based on like patrick i need you to complete this drawing by tuesday and you could do it in one hour or 10 hours like care less it just needs to be done tuesday instead it's i need you to work for five hours on this we only have four hours to do it finish it it takes you eight hours and then i'm tracking how much time it took you know jackson do you in the construction world do you feel like it's more of a time versus task or i i think it's both time and task because each task should take a certain amount of time per the estimate so if you're making you know a connection to an air handler and say it should take, you know, two guys, four hours, that's eight man hours, but it really takes, um, you know, 
six hours. So that's 12. So you're over your budget by four hours. And, you know, a reason for that could be because of external forces, like, you know, say the drywall people were in our way or this wall wasn't built that we were supposed to, you know, stub our pipes through or things like that. Um, so it's a very um, time is money game, but there's just so many external forces when you're on the job site that it makes it really difficult um, without the proper planning and that should be put in place, you know, initially. So everybody can make money. <laughs> yeah. And, and to some of that is like, I think for construction there, if, if you can record like what decisions lead to what coordination issues, um, you can obviously have like some kind of predictive um, yeah, I think kind of say like, okay, you got, you're making that decision now. That's going to cascade, you know, two weeks out into this problem or two months out into this other coordination thing, just based on historical data. I mean, obviously you got Gantt charts and stuff like that, but sometimes, you know, being able to anticipate like, okay, I'm an architect, I'm switching this glass. This glass requires like two X the amount of effort to put it in the frame. Does that make sense? You know, I think a lot of people aren't seeing the whole picture. So they're kind of like making these pinpoint decisions without regard for the project time and the project budget. Yeah, I think a lot of people in projects, they make their decisions based on just them themselves and whether or not it's going to help them be more efficient and make more money and without any regard to the rest of the team as a whole. Because at the end of the day, you know, we're all trying to achieve the same goal, whether we're designing the building or building the building, it's giving the owner a good product. You know. The AEC Disruptors podcast is brought to you by Applied Software. With solutions for the modern project, Applied Software is on a mission to transform industries by empowering clients and champion innovation with real-world expert consultants. Their comprehensive array of solutions for the AEC, MEP, and manufacturing has a singular focus, helping you achieve higher performance. With software, training, support, consulting, and custom development, Applied Software has you covered. Visit asti.com and let them know we sent you. You know, I'd be curious if when, you know, when we're building these automation tools, like, is it possible it may be saving myself an hour, but then it's costing Patrick two and Jackson four. Have we really saved save the time i mean do you do you all at copes will find yourself i mean are you are you because you're kind of a this design simulation tool are you see yourself speaking only to architects or have you started working your way to the to construction side yeah so we actually have contractors and owners as well in our platform not quite as much because we still need to build some more features for them but i think the thing that um, we're always thinking about is what is the data translation like layer between like, if I make something in this tool, what happens when I hand it off to the next person? And if that handoff doesn't work or there's no like ability to send the 3D file to the next guy in a way that he can use it, then it's a useless dead end. It's like a cul-de-sac you can't get out of. And, you know, I don't need to have a helicopter come and grab my my project and pull it over to the next, you know, street. You know, I need to be able to just drive straight through. And I think that's kind of like, the thing that I think a lot of people don't think about when they're thinking about technology in the construction world is like, you know, great, I can put it in BIM 360, but then 
what happens next you know yeah what happens logistically whenever you know you're building a building that's downtown and you've only got two delivery lanes and they're filled out and there's crane time like there's just so many factors that people don't think about you know um, and like and then people are using email to communicate like i talked to investors and was part of our fundraising and i mentioned that and they're like their minds are literally like blowing they're like how is anyone still coordinating things through email but and it may be text message oh, yeah. too. It may be like I send a text to the drywall guy and be like, "Hey, where are you? You need to do this, this, and this." And then, you know, I mean, and, and maybe that's why. Like I remember before um, the pandemic, I started reading about this, and I think now it's even more important because we're all kind of remote. Is this idea of platform technology, where you're like, we have so many point solutions, which are totally okay, but needing to be able to like pull all of those together. So, like, do we say? The guy in the field shouldn't text whoever, or do we say, how do we find a way that he can still text, but we can capture all of that information? I think it's about like using passive data collection. So right now, uh, there's a lot of active input that's required. And anytime there's active input in any process, someone's going to miss typing something in. That's just like the name of the game. So you always want to make it so that if in the course of generating some um, tasks that I need to do, data is generated that gets fed into the overall system that's tracking everything rather than me having to do something. Cause right now, if you think about like a Revit file or a BIM file, I got to like push data into that file continuously. And if I don't put in the wall type, it's just not there. Whereas like if I had automation that was like actually putting the code minimum wall in, or if I had automation that knows that if I use steel, there's like a three month lead time from that factory that I'm, buying it from or if i buy this wood product it has a two-week lead time you know like knowing what those those things are just in a database as well i think database having databases is like the thing that actually makes it so that you can push um, data out to people rather than trying to pull it in all the time you would have made an interesting guest on we uh the episode that will be, I don't know when they'll, when they'll drop, but we had an episode with a guy at Applied Software on blockchain in construction. Well, really AEC, but we talked about blockchain and um, it was all about, you know, obviously it was about blockchain, but it was talking about the ability to track all these assets automatically from start to finish. We talked about things like smart contracts, um, but it was interesting because, you know, here you're talking about it's really about a database. And then here's this technology that's out there that might help us get there. Yeah. There's a lot of like hype with blockchain, but uh, I think with architecture and engineering, like we've, we haven't even picked the low hanging fruit of just like a, a reasonable database. Um, so, you know, there's some things like that. Like um, anytime I, I hear pitches from, cause you know, sometimes we'll, our current investors will send us stuff like, Hey, what, what's going on with this thing? I'll be like, yeah, that's pretty good. But, you know, what about this other thing that they haven't even done yet? And they're like, yeah, that, that's something that maybe we should ask them about. <laughs> we're still doing timesheets and printing paper. So we're not going to get yeah. to blockchain yet. <laughs> yeah, if you're using Excel for everything, like you're probably, uh, there's some major improvements that could occur. There, you know, there are a few good things about it. I, when I, uh, you know, I got my MBA and the reason I got it was because I kind of looked around in architecture and I was like, man, we are so bad at business. Or at least that was the perception. And when we're in architecture school, no one teaches you anything about business. It's, and then you find out that like almost all architecture firms are 
sole proprietors. And, and so I got my MBA, but all that to be said, I took a class and it basically just was about Excel. And I, I was like blown away at some of the stuff. I was like, Oh, dang, <laughs> there's actually some good stuff here. Um, nothing I use for work or just personal, but yeah. Anyway. I, I, I want to talk about the energy analysis, um, you know, tied to the machine learning. So when you're thinking about, you know, the life cycle of a building, does that incorporate climate change projections that, you know, are in the future? You said the buzzword. Oh, man. Yeah. So it's interesting. We actually have built like we're building out right now our predictive climate model. So it's like where you can find the equivalent city. And we actually to test that concept, we actually made it so you can put your building in Cove tool on Mars. So if you name your project Mars Colony in Cove Tool, it automatically, no matter where you've, your building was supposed to be, it, it puts like a Mars map and then puts your building there and puts all the weather files in and everything. But that's so kind of like... you're just getting prepared for when like SpaceX gets us there and we start calling to... us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like if you, I mean, you think about it, like we're really good at warming, th- warming planets up, you know, we might as well go to a super cold planet. <laughs> and warm it up. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, no! You know some of the images that they've sent down from there is pretty fascinating. Um, so I, uh, that that's pretty awesome. He, he, yeah, all all he had to say was Mars, and I got so excited when he said <laughs> that. I was like, <laughs> "It's actually inter- it's interesting though when you run a building with a Mars climate kind of situation, it actually turns out you know like everybody's building in these like Mars concepts of the colonies. They're like, oh, we're gonna put it underground." which the actual atmosphere is thick enough that it actually will protect you from radiation. So it doesn't necessarily have to be underground or they'll like have these like really like international space station looking like dome <laughs> things with like little tiny porthole windows, but windows is how you get heat from the sun. So the most efficient heat you can get is coming directly from the sun and not hitting a solar panel, then going through an electric resistance heater and then coming out to you. So some of the things that we found is like, if you actually increased your glazing to 40%, on Mars, you would probably have enough heat that your solar panel array could actually be reasonably sized. Um, things like that, I think, are kind of interesting. I would but, love to see what, like, the most energy efficient building, well, like the aesthetically beautiful, most energy efficient building on Mars would look like. Yeah. I think somehow it has to be mobile because uh, you're going to be constantly needing to go find resources that aren't where you are. Um, but hanging out near the equator is probably a good idea. Cause that's where the, it's the warmest uh, ton of little Mars, tiny homes. And they yeah. just pull around. I, I, I know on earth, the most aesthetically pleasing for me is definitely the buildings that have the green walls that face West um, with all of the different plants and things. Um, that's actually something that we're trying to do here at the house. So is that something that is either already incorporated or, you know, something that, cause I, I've I feel like that would be pretty difficult to, cause you'd have to like, Oh, it's, you know, these different types of plants, you know, I guess it would, in that case, it would just be the emissivity of the wall. Like how reflective is it? Mm-hmm. Um, generally you're for walls though. They don't really let too much heat through to begin with. So it really comes down to your like windows and how shaded they are. Um, is typically what drives the load. Like what climate are you in? Um, what location? San Antonio. Okay. So San Antonio, um, you're probably going to try to to block a lot of the high high sun, um, but also um, 
yeah, mostly block <laughs> um, in that case. Uh, but some places in Texas, like in Dallas, for instance, you can still accept a little bit of sun to the southeast um, for the winter. But in the vast majority of the time, you want to kind of like just make sure you don't have any direct sun hitting your glass. Uh, it was a really great uh, strategy. If we're trying to create an energy efficient building in Atlanta and these buildings can last 50 years, you know, what are you putting in place or what are you thinking about knowing that that building may not be energy efficient in 15 years? I think if you make it efficient to start off with, it's going to be continue to be efficient in the future. The problem is going to be like, is your HVAC equipment size large enough to deal with that extra heat? Um, Because right now in a it's surprisingly, even though it's called Hotlanta sometimes by people who are not from Atlanta, um, there's actually slightly more uh, <laughs> heat, heating days uh, than it's cooling days. It's just our hip hop name. Yeah. Uh, but so that's kind of an interesting thing. So from an energy standpoint, you actually need slightly more heating. But as that starts to shift, um, your equipment will need to be shifted a little bit or you might need more shading uh, on your building or probably um, you're just going to end up, most people will probably end up just running the building warmer. Um, so we'll all have to probably shift our, our definition of comfort a few degrees higher, uh, to deal with it, uh, unfortunately. So maybe dress codes will change, you know, like <laughs> no more suits. Cause it'll just be too hot. Um, yeah. no, that's interesting. You know, it kind of leads into one of the last topics I was curious about. And when you threw it out there, I was very interested. And you mentioned the idea of this, um, one, how you guys are looking at designing AI systems. And you listed two specific things that I found were interesting. One was, how are we designing AI systems to help promote climate change? Uh, but then the other I thought was pretty interesting was um, how it doesn't lack or lock in uh, systemic racism. Mm-hmm. So I want to know a little bit about, like, one, what kind of got you all looking at that? And then what did you mean by... Uh, what you're looking at yeah so i guess that kind of goes a little bit to some of the conversations we've had with people at like noma um also you know just being in atlanta it's inescapable you're in a city where um, a lot of the civil rights things are first originated mm-hmm. um, obviously it's a topic i care about a lot but i think now that i have family members that are not white um you kind of experience with them by you know hearing their stories the kind of annoying problems and like really bad situations that they go through um, from a racism standpoint. Uh, Cause we have, um, you know, my brother's wife, she's uh, African-American and uh, my wife is Indian. So, you know, we, they experience racism at different levels from different groups of people. And so I think while it was a topic that I really cared about, I think I didn't understand as much as I needed to until fairly recently, like many people. Um, So I think like part of that education process for us has been engaging with people like NOMA, which is the National Organization of Minority Architects and people like that, really making sure that we're aligning ourselves well with the knowledge that already exists about what drives racism in the built environment and educating ourselves and then finding ways that we can find data sets that will, um, even without people even knowing about it, just help them design something that's a little less aggressive. you know, obviously pollution is a huge problem. You know, the, I think it, there was a thing that came out in the New York Times recently that is basically confirms that like uh, white people only experience pollution typically from power plants and uh, non-white people experience pollution from all other sources uh, due to redlining. So that's where they used to like draw lines around certain neighborhoods where you couldn't invest or give loans. So 
a lot of neighborhoods in Atlanta on the south side, for instance, are have a lot of the factories in them. So they have a lot of pollution. And that was because the only place you could build a factory was next to where all the poor brown and black people lived. And so like by understanding where that, where that uh, both economic and environmental pollution has occurred um, is a super important part of being able to design automated systems that can help identify where those things are because you know your average person isn't going to be an expert in race relations so you know even your average architect maybe not even aware that red line ever occurred depending yeah. on what school they went to you know the built environment really really affects that like how much affordable housing that you put into your new mega development you know you're obviously when you build like your tower if you just come in there and build the tower and you don't know what happened before if you're building a luxury uh, high rise in this new factory, uber cool factory district. Um, there's probably people that were tufted out before who are losing their homes. So are you being respectful for that? Um, how are you uh, giving more opportunities for people that allow different kinds of income in neighborhoods or more opportunities for home ownership or condos or you know things like that? Um, kind of, there's a lot of intergenerational wealth that was definitely stolen from people by them not being able to get loans. I never really thought too much about um, my impact on the built environment in this industry. I think this year for a lot has been eye-opening. Hopefully for a lot have been eye-opening. And, and part of that's recruiting. So making sure that you actually go and find a, a diverse cast of characters to put into your business. Um, one of the things that we do is we make sure we try to um, interview a certain pool of candidates that matches the actual makeup percentage-wise of the population. Now, obviously, you know, most qualified person should be hired, but if you're only picking from a certain pool of candidates, you also tend to hire people from that pool. Um, so that's another aspect that you can really start to bring more equity into your business and into the world. It's like just getting more people, um, you know, with different viewpoints, they're going to come up with different ideas. Like, for example, the um, kind of team lead for our research, um, he's a Hispanic guy, really you know, he sees things a little bit differently sometimes. So, you know, like just, or we have Indian folks on the team, we got black people, we got, you know, people from China and people from all these different places. And it really gives us like different perspectives on architecture and how it's practiced that we're not just perpetuating one particular uh, bias. So I think that's pretty cool. I think it's awesome. Yeah. The diversity of thought, I think super important as well, because, you know, things that, the three of us may just assume is the case is not always the case, of course. Um, but if we're making the decisions, then we're missing out on that perspective. Right. So that's very cool. Um, ma'am, you know, I've really enjoyed the chat with you. Um, we're, we were excited to have you on talk. I know we were kind of all over the place, but I felt like there was a lot of good things to, to touch on. And this last topic, we probably could talk for hours because I do am very appreciative of the things I see you all post and do. And, and it seems it seems genuine, at least maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but it seems genuine. And I think that's awesome. Oh yeah. That's something we all definitely care about for sure. That's awesome. Patrick, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on, man. It's a great conversation. And I, I learned a lot. It's really yeah. cool to sit with two architects because, you know, I didn't come from that world. So it's cool to hear your perspective. <laughs> nice. Well, well, super pleasure getting to talk to you all. Um, just appreciate your, your time. Thanks for listening to the AEC Disruptors podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Leave us a rating or review while sharing with your friends and coworkers. I'd love to hear from you. Send me a LinkedIn request or follow our LinkedIn page and let me know if there's a topic you'd like to hear. 
You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. The AEC Disruptors is directed by Christopher Riddell, produced by Todd Wyant, edited by Eric Daniel, and co-hosted by Jackson Sensat. The AEC Disruptors is an applied software production. Copyright Applied Software 2021-2022.